the kids want to go ahead with Hannah and the team in the back. Uh, where's she at? She's in the lobby if you want to take them there. And then we can all go ahead and take a seat and get ready for tonight. It's going to be a beautiful evening. Paul is our apprentice teacher tonight. First time ever teaching here. Anyone else love Apprentice Sundays? I love seeing the community step into the joy of leading for the first time. So we're going to do that. All right. For real, though, let's take a seat because I really can't talk over everybody. Anyone know what today begins the third week of? Advent. Advent. And we haven't said much about it, but I just want to remind you that Advent is the season where our hope grows and expands for the coming Savior as we prepare to receive him. It's a revelation of Jesus. And I think as we even end First Peter tonight, tonight's our last weekend in First Peter, that we take a moment just to remember the hope of glory. Hey, if you guys just wouldn't mind. Oh, thank you so much. Sam has a hard job standing up here every week. I appreciate you so much wherever you're at. Wow, thank you. But First Peter really does. It ends and begins and is all about a revelation of Jesus. I just want to remind you some of the words in it. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You were redeemed from your empty way of life by the precious blood of Christ. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Quoting the Psalms, Peter says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The entire book of Peter is first and foremost all about Jesus, a revelation of Jesus before it's so much just commands. And I just want to remind you that as Paul comes up to teach tonight. I'm so excited for this. I told him that I would read the passage so that he could have like an extra two minutes to preach. So we're kind of cheating a little bit, but whatever. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to be in verse 12 of Peter 4, of 1 Peter 4, by the way. Chris did 1 Peter 5 last week because we didn't know he was going to be here this week. So here we go. Um, it's going to be up on the screen as well, Haley, if you want to put it up there. Dear friends... Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, church, you are blessed for the name of Christ. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. That's going to be a big word tonight. But praise God that you bear his name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Come on, Paul. Bring us in. We're going to pray for Paul really fast. Lord, we just bless this man of God, this man whose heart is to honor you, is to glorify you, whose heart is to lead us, the sheep, to you, the good shepherd. And so, God, we ask that you lead us tonight through Paul. Give him a heart of leadership, of shepherding, of just honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tyler. So I just want to first 
just take the time to say, I'm so grateful for Genesis. I was one of those people who came and everybody was just a stranger who became friends, who became family. And everybody who's been on this journey with me, love you guys all so much. I'm just so, so filled with gratitude in my heart tonight. So, so let's get right into it. Um, March 19th, 2020, stay-at-home orders were mandated as a response to COVID-19. Fear, uncertainty, and angst swept across the nation. And now we're 20 months into it, entering into a new normal. The LA Times published just this past week about the mental health challenges confronting the youth. Symptoms of depression and anxiety have doubled during the pandemic, with one out of four experiencing depressive symptoms and one out of five experiencing anxiety. As I've been thinking about the times we're living in, the image of being lost at sea comes to mind. We are facing disorientation and overload like never before. We have so much information and content bombarding us that we can't even handle it. And we're juggling what seems like an infinite number of things to get done, goals to crush, and endless possibilities. The everyday demands of life don't stop, and if we can be honest with ourselves, it just feels like we don't have the time or the energy to process everything going on, let alone our inner world and our relationship with God. We can't help but feel that deep beneath the surface lies a sense of FOMO, discontentment, aimlessness, anxiety, and confusion. We want clarity in our life path, but with so many things competing for first place in our lives, it feels more like we're going around circles, if not completely being rocked by the storms and the waves, or worse, with no conscious awareness, just drifting farther and farther off course. Like the Trojan horse, the enemy has bypassed our defense systems in broad daylight, disguised as the very things our hearts desire, so that we are the ones who allow access into our very being. Church, there is a war being waged on your soul. Are you guys aware of this? We must anchor ourselves in Jesus. He is our true north. I believe that we've become desensitized to the way the enemy has infiltrated our mind with the secular and cultural norms surrounding us and blinding us to the ways that idols have taken root in our heart. The war of desires on top of the disorienting times we live in has led us into apathy and anxiety, disconnecting and robbing us of the peace and transformational power that comes from being with Jesus. So, Peter was writing this letter to a group of believers who were living a life that was so countercultural to their surrounding environment that he called them aliens of the land. Faithfulness was an issue, as many of these believers were once part of engaging in idol worship, and even after conversion, there was a high number of converts who had one foot in the kingdom of God while having the other foot in the old ways of life, much of them unaware of the damage that was taking place. So Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trials you're going through. Peter is using this imagery of fire to remind us of the ongoing process 
of how we are refined in this life, how the spiritual journey is one of detachment from the things of this world and attaching onto God. And it's a challenging, slow, and often painful process of getting out the impurities in us and bringing us into transformation to Christ-likeness. A lot of times we don't even realize how these attachments have become idols that prevent us from walking deeply with God. I think Peter's heart in this passage isn't so much about the emphasis of being excited about suffering. It's about fidelity and faithfulness to Jesus no matter the cost. It's about the lover of our soul who never stops pursuing us and is asking you, can you trust him no matter what? Too often the cost seems too great and many are enticed by the allures of this world, ultimately walking away or settling for a mediocre faith in exchange for comfort, security, and pleasures. Church, will you choose faithfulness to Jesus or will you choose to pursue the fleeting pleasures in American dream? Peter's reminding us that we must be prepared for the opposition, that the pull of the world is so strong that without Jesus, our souls will be led astray. Brothers and sisters, not only are we exiled from our surrounding world and culture, we are exiled from our own souls. We've placed so much emphasis on the accumulations and accomplishments that we don't even know who we are without these things. Is it any surprise we're a generation looking for our identity and purpose in everything exterior to us when the only place we will ever truly know ourselves is in God who is our origin? Thankfully, Jesus gives us the antidote and is to abide in him. In John 15, Jesus' invitation to us is to abide in him to bear much fruit and that apart from him we can do nothing. But what does it even really mean to abide? By abiding, I believe he means a posture of the heart that is open and tender towards him. It's about responding to God's invitation to personal encounter and love. Abiding isn't just another thing to get off your list and pat yourself on the back. No, it's an invitation to a love relationship where you are loved and known. And out of that deep knowing and being, are you able to see clearly for the first time who you are, what your purpose is, and find your own true voice. Peace that the world cannot offer, that peace begins to permeate through your whole being. Yet too often we are so preoccupied with our anxieties and our problems that we can't come to him with this openness. Even if we're conscious of all these factors, how do we come to terms with them? So much of it seems impossible to fully ever resolve or just too messy. And unless it's in a safe place, it just feels way too vulnerable, way too scary. Surrender. It must start by surrendering and trusting in God's love. Only in the safe space of God's love are we able to start uncovering the truth about ourselves and bring healing to our soul. Will you put your trust in Jesus? I believe that's at the core of abiding a safe space where you are fully known and you can stop pretending and come as you are 
with all of your imperfections and your brokenness, not to be judged, but embraced fully, deeply, and unconditionally. So the question now is, how do we make all this head knowledge take root into our hearts? It's through prayer. In my own life, this has looked like having a lot of grace and being kind to myself. It's been asking God to increase the capacity of my heart to receive more of his grace and love for me on a daily basis. It's been letting go of control and learning how to rest and slow down. It's been a lot of wrestling and struggling with letting go of things that I've elevated above God. It's been bringing God my hurts, my failures, my doubts, and allowing him to bring healing and peace into my heart. It's been embracing reality and not pretending like everything is all right when it's not. It's been learning to express my emotions in a healthy way instead of repressing them or turning to coping mechanisms. It's been sitting with him not to get anything out of him or prove to him of my worth and value, but just being with him in his presence to be loved by him and to love him back. So I believe that these three movements of abiding, surrender, and prayer is what Peter was getting at in this passage, that we must arm ourselves and hold fast to Jesus, not a theological conviction and a set of do's and don'ts, but the actual person of Jesus, so that we may be unshaken and full of joy no matter what comes our way. So to close, a story from when I was a personal trainer. I had a client named Amy, And Amy had a great job. She was pretty. She was kind. She had everything that anybody would have ever wanted. She had a good life. And she was a writer, so every now and then we would talk about words. And I remember on one particular day, she asked me, what's your favorite action power verb? And I'm like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) And before, before I could even answer, she goes, My favorite is the word anchored. And I remember on the last day I trained her, I remember something being off, and she just wasn't present. Her mind was somewhere else, but I didn't think anything of it. Come Monday, she missed her session, and she was a super punctual person, so I didn't hear from her. I gave her a couple more days, didn't hear back, so called her mom and just to see if she was all right to find out that she committed suicide over the weekend. As I was prepping for this message, the Spirit of God brought to light and connected how her favorite word, being anchored, was directly connected to the tumultuous and anxious condition of her untethered soul, dealing with the disorientation of life unable to navigate all the tensions and the pressures that ultimately she made a permanent decision to a momentary problem. Her soul was longing to be anchored in the storm that was her life. As Augustine said in the fourth century, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our souls long to be anchored in God. Nothing else will counter the cultural formation that is occurring daily. Nothing else will reorder our disordered desires. 
Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will truly bring the soul home. Good job, Paul. Good job. That was beautiful, dude. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Don't forget what he said just because I'm starting to preach because that was good. Um, I'm going to land us in just like 20-ish minutes, just wrapping up First Peter. And, uh, you know, this week I was reading an article in Forbes because I read Forbes all the time. Not. And uh, <laughs> it was about the, what are you laughing about? <laughs> that was like a belly laugh. Like, you know I don't. Um, but I was reading about the financial meltdown of Southeast Asia in 1997. What I found so interesting about it was South Korea was kind of the headline of the financial meltdown. But here's the thing is that pre-1997, they were kind of the textbook example of what economic resilience and revival could look like. Uh, in this article I was reading, they were talking about South Korea, this once poor Japanese colony that underwent an unbelievable economic transformation in the second half of the 20th century. To many on the outside, it honestly looked like a miracle. It happened by just a huge investment into uh, education, and it happened through great policy reform. But it happened like that, and, and, and just like that, they went from being this once poor and economically desolate country to the 11th largest economy in the world. And they got to enjoy that for about 50 years until the financial meltdown plagued them. Businesses were failing, loans weren't being paid, banks were collapsing. It looked a lot like our economy in 2008, but on a way grander scale. Investors could not get money out of the country quick enough. They were pointed out by the tens of billions of dollars. All the cash dried up, hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs and the economic floor beneath South Korea completely collapsed, leaving them at the bottom. In a last-ditch effort, they applied for a, 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 a loan, I guess you would call it, from the International Monetary Fund for $58 billion, the largest bailout there has ever been in the history of the world. It was huge. Or in Donald Trump's words, huge. It was absolutely huge. <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, they had to pay that back. They had to pay that money back, and it did help stimulate their economy, but it didn't fix it by any means because they still didn't have the money, and they were still in debt, and they had a deadline to pay it back by. And the national leaders, this is where I find it so incredibly uh, helpful for us, is that the national leaders knew that they didn't have the cash liquidity to pay this money back, but they assumed they surely had about $20 billion worth of gold in South Korean households in the form of jewelry, like watches, rings, necklaces, even things like trophies. Genius. And so here's, I want you to catch this, guys. On January 5th, 1998, that is almost 23 years to the day, minus one day, that the American people stormed the American Capitol in stance of my rights, my freedoms. No one's taking anything from me. 
almost 23 years to the day, the South Koreans stormed the streets in, person, uh, in, in, in complete selflessness and radical generosity to give away their golden possessions, their family heirlooms, to help pay back the national debt because they're a collectivist society. A society that's far more concerned about the well-being of the we than the me. On average, each person donated about 65 grams of gold. If you want to have an idea of how much that is, that's about each person giving away $640 today worth of gold. Can you imagine a radical national movement like that? It'd be absolutely amazing. I, I honestly can hardly imagine it. And to be honest, this actually didn't pay off the entire national debt. It really just kind of scratched the surface. But what it did is it kick-started the economy. It helped motivate the company to pay it back. And they ended up paying back the largest bailout in the history of the world three years early. It's amazing. To this day, it stands as one of the most beautiful examples of the gift of a collective society that's in, that kind of exists for the need of one another. Now, I've got to be honest about something. I sometimes think the whole world revolves around me. Me, me, me. I mean, especially during Christmas, dude. You know. I know I'm meant to be generous. I know I'm meant to be loving and forgiving and you name it. But sometimes it's just hard to think beyond my preoccupation of me. And I'm not here to tell you that people haven't always been selfish. They have been. And I'm definitely not telling you that they haven't always wanted more for themselves. They have. But this idea of individualism, that the whole world revolves around me, it's actually a very new concept in the time, in, in kind of the history of time. It's a, the, the actual uh, phrase or term in uh, individualism is a product of the Enlightenment. So it was coined in 1820. That's only 200 years ago. And we're talking in context that we are uh, walking through the New Testament that was written about 2,000 years ago. And I find it so important tonight to wrap up our series through 1 Peter, just honing in on this moment. That these letters, 1 Peter, it wasn't written to you and I who sit in our reading nooks with our oat milk latte with our Bible. Like you, because you know you've done it, just like me, yes. <laughs> but Peter opens his letter like this. To the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's, he's writing to a group, many churches of people. But it is, it's, it's such a cultural norm in our individualistic culture to believe that the Bible is kind of God's love letter to me. And don't get me wrong, we do live in a beautiful moment. We live after the printing press. We can have our own printed Bibles where we can sit and meditate on Scripture and have intimacy with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like Paul led us in. That is not only helpful, it is needed as a follower of Jesus. But Peter, he's writing to a people who are uh, in exile, they're an exiled minority amongst a violent majority. They're the powerless amongst the powerful. And I just believe that Peter knows that the good news of Jesus, it will not thrive by a couple of people living it well. 
It won't. There's no option for some people to play their part and for others to sit on the sideline and watch and maybe even clap. But it will take the collective involvement of an entire community of faith, an entire country, however you want to look at it, giving their all to see the gospel permeate throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world with influence and power. And it just seems to me that, Paul, that Peter is starting to wind down this letter by exposing one last thing where the church uh, kind of, where it struggles in division and separation and has dishonored the name of Jesus. And the two things that he hones in on in this scripture are sin and suffering. Suffering can be a very contested conversation amongst us, at least at a collective level, I know, because we all live in Orange County, California. Most of us live in some of the richest zip codes, not just in the country, in the whole world. And I know a lot of us even live about 10 to 15 minutes from the beach, and we take advantage of that all the time. So to say that we're suffering, that's kind of a hard conversation, or at least a hard one to back up. But there is absolutely personal suffering, 100%. We've all experienced a trauma of sorts, loss of a loved one, anxiety, depression, mental health. We have all experienced personal suffering, absolutely. But I just want to remind us as we kind of dive into this for the last time that Peter is writing of a collective suffering. His, his encouragements and suffering are to a people, not just a person. Uh, the, the theologian Scott McKnight, I felt helped bring a lot of resolution to this conversation for me when I read it. And, and as I do, I just want to remind you, when, we, when we're talking about suffering in First Peter, we're really thinking along the lines of like social ostracism or social rejection. This probably isn't yet the season of the Roman candle era where Christians were literally being lit on fire and put out in the streets. That did come, but that's probably not this moment. But this moment is much more of a social rejection. Scott uh, McKnight says that when we, when we read suffering in 1 Peter, we should really read kind of suffering and shame as one and the same. When we think of suffering, we should really think of shame. Well, why shame? It's because these collectivist societies, especially in ancient times like this, were known as honor-shame cultures. In an honor-shame culture, one person's success could bring honor to an entire group of people. It's kind of like Sam Asheris being on staff at Genesis. You know what I'm saying? People are like, oh my gosh, Genesis is so involved in the city. You guys are so amazing. I'm like, well, really, Sam is, and she brings all of us into it. She's brought honor on the community. But in the very same way, one person's mistakes can bring dishonor to an entire group of people. In Michael Gorman's book, The Apostle of the, uh, Apostle of the Crucified, sorry, I don't have this one on this screen, so just listen, he speaks of the honor-shame culture like this. In this context, self-esteem would be conceived of as a ridiculous moron. Oh, oxymoron. <laughs> the, <laughs> well, I guess. <laughs> The only self-esteem one has is not bestowed by the self, but by the group. In this environment, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid at all, but it's viewed as appropriate and welcome. I wish I could have told my mom that in high school. Honor is the greatest value in an honor-shame culture, and shame is the most detestable value in an honor-shame culture. Where are we at? 
Sorry, guys. Okay, so let's wrap this up here, at least this part of it. Uh, because in honor, and here's, here's why I feel this is so important for us, is because in an, I like it, Levi, in an honor-shame culture, here's the thing. There are certain things that do bring honor to you, like economic status, like kind of being a part of the right family, but this is what's so interesting about it, is that you could have all the money in the world. You could have a great job. You could have a roof over your head. You could have obedient children. And you could still be considered the bottom of society. Why? Because you're a part of those people. And in our context, because you're one of those Christians. So stay away. We, we, don't, we don't want that around here. You've brought shame on us. See, to be a Christian in Rome in the first century meant to constantly face the lie that your life is meaningless. That because you bear the name of Jesus, that you're at the bottom of society. You've brought dishonor on your family and into your community. That's a really heavy load to bear. So that's why I'm not surprised that Peter spends pretty much the majority of this letter encouraging the saints in their suffering because it is an everyday, all-day battle. And I think this honor-shame culture for you and I is a really important thing to find ourselves in the midst of the context of, of 1 Peter because he writes this. This is verse 12, and I'm going to hop around so you don't need to put it up on the screen. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you're insulted or, for our understanding, shamed because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. I think we can probably all agree that first century Christians, uh, they lost an amount of, of honor and, and experienced an amount of rejection that we probably as 21st century American Christians won't in our lifetime, at least probably. But have you ever felt embarrassed for your faith? Have you ever felt like people are going to look at you a little bit differently if they knew that you were a Christian? Have you ever been ashamed to believe that you admit that kind of stuff? Because when you say it out loud, it actually does sound a little bit crazy. Or maybe like, yeah, Jesus is great for me. I love him. But if he's not for you, totally get it. No worries. You do your thing. I think a, probably a pretty common one is, I love his teachings, I really like Jesus, but I could really go for a Christianity without all those Christians, because you know those people. <laughs> I think if, if we're honest, we love Jesus, but we often feel socially shamed about it, or at the bare minimum, we at least feel socially foreign for it. And so often what we do is we water it down. We make it a bit more palatable so that the people around us don't think we're crazy or so they don't think we think they're crazy for not believing what we believe, right? And Peter talks about our sufferings or shame in our context as a fiery ordeal to test us, to test us, to find out what's really in there, what's really going on beneath the surface. And the image he uses, like Paul told us, is that of a refiner's fire, 
Now, I realize I've actually preached on a refiner's fire like a lot, and I've never watched a video or seen it done ever. And so I did this week, and it was enlightening. I should have done it a long time ago. But I have a picture, uh, Haley, if you want to put it up on the screen. It'll be in the notes portion. Okay, so this. This is called a golden ore. Um, basically, it's, it's gold and rock. And so at best, we can probably say this is a pretty rock, but that's about all it is to us. It's a pretty rock, right? But what they do is they'll take ore, this, this thing that holds gold and just anything else, and they'll put it down in this tube called a crucible, and then they put fire on it. Now, I don't want you to think like flames of fire. It's like lava. They're like pouring fire into this jar to refine this. And what happens is when it's in there, it separates anything that's pure gold and then anything that's impure. They call it dross. And it separates. So when you come out and through a couple of other processes, all you have left is the pure, undefiled, undefiled gold. Now, here's what's interesting about this is that you could have a big piece of golden ore and then you put it in the refiner's fire and realize, oh, there's actually not that much gold in here. You could have a small piece of ore like this and pull it out and realize, wow, this was very, very dense with gold. And see, Peter seems to make the point that until you walk through your testing or you're suffering, or you've dealt with shame, you don't actually know what's in there. You might look really good, especially during really good times, but until you go through the fire, you don't really know what's in there. There's two moments in my life where I felt especially exposed in this. The one's a little more ongoing. The second one, the second one was in the past. The first is like any time I'm in an Uber or an airplane, and someone asks me what I do, and I'm a pastor, and I'm like, okay, uh, how do I explain to them I'm not one of those crazy people and they're probably going to ask me about the mark of the beast and hell and people rising from the dead. Haley, why don't you tell them about being a teacher? Like nobody can argue with it, right? I am a weak man. Like I am frail. I am so easily shaken that an Uber driver can take me down. It's true. But the second is this, and this fortunately was in the past, it was my senior year of high school spring break. Now, my mom was a homie that year and gave me two, two weeks of spring break. The first week, I went to Guatemala, and I got to go on a mission trip there and build houses. And it was an amazing but, like, really rough experience because I got there, and this family of six was living under just one piece of tin with four sticks holding it up. And that's just the way they had been living for years. And so we got there, and we got to spend a week with them, pouring the foundation for a new home and building the walls and putting a roof on it. And it was just so fun. They cooked us some of my favorite meals I've ever had. And at the end of the week, we were in the house with them to dedicate the house to them, to give them the keys. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> we're giving them the keys, and the dad, his name is Juan, he just bends over like this and is just bawling, just saying, gracias, senor, gracias, senor. And then he just starts jumping, gracias, senor, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And I just remember in that moment, my life was so radically changed because God showed me his heart for his people and how much he loves them. 
I was just bending over waterfalls coming out of my Oakley sunglasses. My home group leaders were praying for me. Like, it was a moment that changed me forever. I don't think I would be here today if it weren't for that moment. That was a Friday. Saturday, I flew home. And on Sunday, I got on a plane for my senior year spring break to uh, Cancun. And I had told all my friends, guys, don't, don't try to get me to party. I'm not, like, they knew I was walking with Jesus. I just asked them, please don't try to do that. Guys, the first night of spring break, I got so drunk. I literally was walking like this. Like, it was, it was I've never, ever experienced that before. And I got back to the hotel, and they had messed up our room. So there was three of us, my friend Brock, who's 6'9", Hunter, who's 6'6", and me, who's 6'3", and there was one king-size bed. <laughs> guess who slept in the middle that night? I did. And guess who was so drunk that he wet the bed and peed all over his friends? 18 years old, I did. It was rough. And I remember waking up the next morning feeling so ashamed. Like, God, 48 hours ago, I was building homes in Guatemala. Your Holy Spirit was touching me. My life was forever changed. Like, that was 48 hours ago. What has happened here? And I'm sure I'm not, for how much you guys are laughing, I'm sure I'm not the only one with a story like that in here. It seems to resonate somewhere in here. <laughs> but friends... Isn't that Peter's story? The very man who writes this letter. Haley, if you want to put the scripture on the screen. This is Matthew 26, the night that Jesus was betrayed. He said, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. What did he do three times that very night? He disowned him. Genesis, when I read 1 Peter... I don't read it like a book with a writer saying, you wussies, stand up. You failures, look what you're doing to the name of Jesus, you kids. I don't read it like that. Read it like it's written from the heart of a vulnerable man, completely honest and transparent about his greatest failure. As he's writing, he's thinking, I, I thought I could do it. I thought I could stand up. I thought I could walk through the fire. I thought I was strong. I thought I was a faithful man. I thought I could do it. And I looked Jesus straight in the eyes, and I told him, I will never, ever deny you. And on that very night, while that selfless man was busy getting spit on, and beaten and nailed to a cross for our sake. I was busy telling people, 
I never even knew who he was for my sake. Friends, I believe Peter writes this letter with grace and honesty. As they're reading his words, they're replaying his story in their mind, and his pastoral heart is just beating for them. I've been there. Learn from my mistakes. You don't have to repeat them. Because Peter is actually well acquainted with much of the cultural baggage that you and I do carry today. At least as followers of Jesus. Peter stood before man in the dark of night in the shame and dishonor of ever even, of, of, of saying that he never even knew Jesus. And just a couple days later, he stood in the light of the morning gazing upon the glory and the honor of the resurrected Jesus. And he writes, church, be proud that you, that you wear the name of Jesus. Wear it like a badge of honor. Be faithful to him. Do good for him. Because one day, you'll stand before the resurrected Jesus too. He says, judgment is starting now, and it starts with us. And it won't be man who judges you. It won't matter what people thought of you on this earth or what they didn't think about you. But we'll stand before the judgment of God. And I just want to remind you, Genesis, that the judgment of God is a very, very, very good thing. It's a very good thing. Much like a refiner's fire, it will separate the good from the evil. It'll separate the pure from the impure, and friends, there are very evil, real evil things that happen on this earth. And then his kingdom will reign on earth. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more evil, and peace will be our reality. That's the beauty of the judgment of God. And I think that tonight, many of us needed to be reminded of Peter's story. We needed to be reminded of the grace of God that restores us, no matter how much we've screwed it up, because Peter knows good and well what it's like to screw it up. The very man who denied that he ever even knew Jesus fell in the shame or the sufferings of being a follower of Jesus. Says, take joy in your sufferings. Be strong, church. Wear his name like a badge of honor in Genesis. As we wrap up First Peter, that is the call to us. That's God's call to us. To be unashamed of the faith that we bear, the name that we have right here, written on our forehead, sons and daughters of God, wear it like a badge of honor, live for him, be faithful to him, do good for him, all for his kingdom to come. And so I'm finished, and I just wanted to leave us with three moments, or kind of three practices that we can allow this to not just become a head idea, a really good thing to believe, but to sink deep into our spirit so that they may come alive. Now, I tried to get this on the screen, and uh, for some reason it didn't work, so I'm just going to read it to you, but this is, I've been really into Tim Keller lately, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I don't think it'll go all the way through, so don't sweat it. Um, Tim Keller says this, when you have to choose between God and money, God in popularity, God in position, God in comfort, God in dot, dot, dot. 
that's when you know you're in the refiner's fire. You can't sit in comfortable circumstances and say to God, I want to put you first. You don't know how. You haven't learned until you've been in the fire. You can come up if you want. And I just want to ask you today, are you aware of those places in your life, God and dot, dot, dot? What is it that when they're put next to each other, we look much more ashamed of God than proud to wear his name? I just want to ask you as we even worship tonight to consider, what is that dot, dot, dot? The second is this, is that if you're ashamed of the church and of Christians, my request is that you would be the change. Please don't be the opposite opposing voice that's loud, that's just slandering the bride of Jesus back. Be the voice in the church that God wants to establish, that God is building up. Be a part of that. It's way more beautiful. And so thirdly tonight, uh, we're just going to spend some time in worship and prayer, unless you want to come up right now. Okay. And I just want to ask any of our leaders, Joe and Shelley and the Romers and anyone else who can, just come and pray. And if, if any of this tonight just felt like, man, I just want to come to the Lord with an honest and vulnerable heart, that people would pray for me to take, you know, to have strength in my sufferings, to be unashamed of the name I bear. Or maybe it's a moment of repentance. God, I have slandered your name. I have slandered your church by causing disunity and separation. Come tonight and just receive grace. Allow someone to pray with you to build you up. Maybe there's many other reasons tonight. You just need to be built up in the hope of Jesus. Come and pray. There's no reason you can or can't. Maybe you need physical healing tonight. Maybe your heart, your hard heart needs healing and broken open again. That's the opportunity for tonight. So I'm just going to pray and then we're just going to worship as Dana and the team sing over us. And prayers, you can come down. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Jesus. And sometimes we believe that, but it's hard to live it out in the face of this culture that we live in. In the face of the shame that we'll experience for people. And being afraid of what people will really think. So Jesus, I thank you that tonight you've given us the blessing, the benediction to go forth, to be proud that we bear the name of Jesus. So just teach us how to live as sons and daughters. Thank you for your grace, God, that's shown us through the story of Peter that you can rebuild us and restore us. God, we repent of the ways that we have denied that we ever even knew you, but God, we know that you can build us up to become a voice of truth and a voice of unity and a voice of joy for the name of Jesus. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you come tonight and just lead us to Jesus. As we worship, as we pray for one another, lead us to Jesus that we may bear his name with great pride and great joy. Amen.